Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. My guest today is known to many listeners of Tent Theology. I know this because I heard from you when I announced I was interviewing her. Let me read her bio from the back of one of her books. It says better than I could what this lady is all about. Danielle Strickland is an author, speaker, trainer, and global social justice advocate. Her aggressive compassion has served people firsthand in countries all over the world, from establishing justice departments for the Salvation Army to launching global anti-trafficking initiatives to creating new movements to mobilize people towards transformational living. Affectionately called the Ambassador for Fun, she is host of the DJ Strickland podcast, co-founder of Infinitum, Amplify Peace, Brave Global, and the Women's Speaker Collective. Danielle is married to Stephen and lives in Toronto, Canada with their three sons. I spoke with Danielle about her growing up and how her imagination towards social and political things changed over time and what stayed the same. We talked about power and we talked about her book, Better Together of Men and Women and how to approach the issue of power differently depending on who's in the room that you're talking with. Danielle is also launching the Christmas Challenge with her Infinitum project. This is being launched at the beginning of December, so I encourage anyone to go and look at the show notes for this podcast where I provide a link to the thing that Danielle talks about during the conversation. I really enjoyed talking with Danielle. I was so glad that she sat down with me for an hour. I hope you will enjoy this too, and I'm sure you will. Daniel Strickland, you've joined the tent and you've got a lot going on. What is going on in Daniel Strickland land? Daniel Strickland, what's going on with you right uh, now? There you go, Strickland. My kids are always creating new worlds. You know, that's their that's their big thing right now on like power maps and like they name them all, but I'm going to tell them Strickland. That's a good one. How do we not think of that? I don't know. Uh, you know, a lot of things going on. I, I just launched this year a, non, a new nonprofit called Inby in my backyard, and it's building tiny houses in people's backyards, uh, going to rethink through uh, the way we live, you know, uh, both trying to dismantle the idolatry of the nuclear family and then kind of correct a lot of the suburban uh, you know, damages of, you know, where we've championed autonomy and exclusion. And we're just going to try to adjust those things because it's killing everybody. Um, so how does a tiny house attack the principality of the nuclear family or dismantle yeah. some of these idolatries? How does that happen? Talk well, me through the, the idea, process. Yeah. I mean, the idea is that, you know, we ask a question like who's, you know, whose backyard is it anyway, uh, for example. And then we're trying to create places where there's a shared mutuality. So there's a, there's mutual flourishing, which is everybody recognizing that everyone has something to contribute and that we're actually better together. That's kind of this idea that we're better with each other. So the tiny house is like affordable, creates affordable rent or micro ownership. So that's, uh, those are things we're working on in terms of economic equity, but then also this idea of we're sharing land together and we're trying to live 
differently. So we, we go in and work with the family that hosts this or the people that are hosting to do like a community contract. What exactly does it look like to live together rather than uh, we're just renting out a schnazzy tiny house in our backyard. So shared meals, so shared meals and like sharing space and like sharing chores, like um, so that there's this idea that we're contributing and, and sharing sort of our lives together. And are, are, are landowners putting these houses on their backyards and then inviting people to live in them with them? Yeah, so there's a, there's two different models. One is like, uh, if it has to be kind of, like there are some backyards where you're kind of stuck building it in the backyard. You can't, if you can't come and go in cities especially. So those would probably be uh, landlord owned and then just affordable rent. But one of the models of the affordable rent is that a portion of the rent goes into a trust so that the people that are living there are building equity. So that would be financed by the homeowners because it, it, it's only going to uh, increase the value of their house. Um, and then there's one that's like, if it's portable, uh, it's a portable option. So you have a big enough entry into your backyard that you can uh, put one in there, but it can, it can leave. Uh, we're looking at um, the dweller owned model. So they're basically like leasing the land in a way but they own their own house. So it's like their first. And again, it's about equity and value. Have you, is this just in Canada or is this a international project? Yeah, it's literally um, just starting like here <laughs> in my local, even like locally, we're trying to model five pilots right now. Yeah. So we're, we're literally just like in fundraising gear, trying to uh, raise it. You know, it's just, we just kicked it off. And uh, we have five backyards, people that are willing to be part of the project. Yeah. And then there's a friend of mine in Atlanta who called me up and said, I want to start and be in Atlanta. So it's starting in Atlanta now, but kind of just organically, there's no plan. Um, and I think eventually the idea is that, you know, I'm not, we're not even precious about building them. Uh, what I, what I think uh, we want to do is really help with this model, like a, a recipe for how we can do life differently, kind of celebrate diversity, welcome difference, and and then and then see that as opportunity for growth. Is this? Have you ever come across Graham Singh? Do you know the Trinity Centers? Yeah, you know the yeah, right on the board. Yeah, <laughs> is that something? Could churches with with large land or equity could they start to use this for in other ways, or is this a private thing? Or could organizations yeah, do this? Yeah, I do think, and you know, there are these, so this is interesting, just ha having lived a lot of, uh, done a lot of projects with uh, low-income housing and like building lots of housing because it's such a need. Um, but one of my dislikes about the way we do this is we segregate people in like social things. And so we just almost recreate bubbles, including in the suburbs, you know, just even how suburbia was built was a segregated model. So part of my desire, my deep desire is to push back against that segregated model and say like, we've got to figure out a, a way of living together again. Um, so that the church is yes. I think great tiny house villages, yes, 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 yes. But Indy's most, you know, I, at least I'm most interested in getting to that piece where we open our lives up to others. And um, so yeah, church, like why wouldn't we open church property anyway? by the way, but I just, I, that vision of like, if we have a church property, we can put 10 tiny houses on here and we can create like a low income village. That's not really my dream. I think it's a good dream and people should do it. 
but that's not my, you know, this, I feel like it, again, it's like another way of segregating people. And that's, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Unless you move a variety of people into that, that, that could be a cool experiment. But what, but you're also thinking about what the effect it's having on the family who's invited this to happen, right? Like it's, yeah. it's really cracking open their little insular view of themselves, I suppose. Well, I suppose. yeah, and I think COVID really uh, exposed this reality of like, we're dying of loneliness and we live very isolated lives. So like when I, we had a, a refugee couple living with us and an intern living with us in this little house in Toronto when COVID hit and we kind of had a party. I mean, everybody else was like languishing and we were like having great fun together because we had this like house full of people. Like, so we all got COVID together. We all survived together. And then we all like, so I feel like we didn't really experience that like intense, isolated, lonely thing because we live differently. And I think that I realized, you know, I think people started to realize, wait a minute, like addictions out of control, domestic violence is out of control, like our lives, like this thing, like women are dropping out of the workforce like flies because they can't do it all. And it's like, well, yeah, because we were designed to do this isolated by ourselves. Like there is no such thing. It does take a village to raise children, trust me. But so I think there's also this deep need within suburbia to say like, okay, guys, we've tried, it's only 70 years since the first North American suburban planning happened. So it's not like, this isn't how we lived. Didn't fall uh, from right. heaven, fully formed, no. Right, this is yeah. an, a social experiment. And I would say that it needs some adjustments. Like, you know, 70 years later, this is breeding, you know, really a lot of unhealthiness and people are lonely and uh, by themselves a lot of the time. So regardless of their social income, right? Like that's the income, it's just the money's just, right. you know, not, not even the point. The point is how do we live differently, so. And loneliness, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I think it's like the number one problem. Like it's apparently it kills, it uh, really decreases your life uh, span. Uh, loneliness is one of those things that can kill you. How, how ironic that this desire to create little suburbs for the nuclear family has the fruit of that is pandemic of loneliness. Yeah. And I remember like the first suburb, like we lived in cities uh, for doing urban sort of church planting and stuff. So we lived in apartments and a condo. And so we always went to the park to play, you know, that was our, that's the thing you do with, the, with my, with my son. And when uh, we moved to the first suburban home that we ever had, it wasn't our own home, but we, we moved in there. And I remember him just running with his big backyard. And I remember Zion just like running around this backyard and going like, we have such a great backyard. I was like, we really do. There's like a fire pit in here. Like, this is awesome. And he looks at me and he goes, this is amazing. And I said, it is. And then he said, but who will I play with? And I was like, right. And then you just think of that, like multiply, like every yard has its own fenced in, but like kids are playing by themselves, right? Like, it's just the saddest. I just like, when he said that to me, I was just like, this is the saddest thing ever. Wow. We have this big backyard and you can play with in it by yourself. I so mean, what did you do about it at the time? You weren't starting the the tiny houses then. So what did you do? How did you get it? Oh, yeah, we, we just we our family has always lived openly. So like we always have people living with us for the most part. And we got we we intention I intentionally invite like so every Friday night was fire night. And we'd have like 25 people around the fire and a potluck on Sunday, you know, like so we just have this like open hospitable posture that we practiced um so that's how we kind of dealt with that and also we had more kids that helped I think a lot of of that like there's got to be a different way to live you know sort of because uh my early 
life was like rejecting the suburban thing and moving into the city and moving into like a different way of life. But then when I when I got to the suburbs, I was like, surely there has to be a way of using and transforming this space. And this is maybe the the harder work, you know, to take our space and say, okay, I've got to live differently here. And what does that look like? So you mentioned uh, when you were younger growing up. And so listeners of Tent know that I always ask, what what did Danielle Strickland, I guess you weren't Strickland at the time. What did Danielle, young Danielle, what did she, what was she born into? What kind of social, political imagination did you inherit, do you think? Yeah, I was Strickland. I never changed my name when I got married. So. Oh, good. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, that, this is interesting, you know, like I, my parents both were rescued orphans. Okay. And they were rescued by the Salvation Army in different uh, situations. My dad was sold as a baby. My mom was a foster care kid. Was, is this in Canada or? This is in Canada. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so Salvation Army door knocking in different neighborhoods, looking for kids that might want to be welcomed and uh, be part of, you know, the church. And so they both found Jesus, found welcome. They both say they never even knew what it meant to be wanted until they, they met the church. And so we really grew up with this tribal understanding of, I always say, like, we were always on the side of the underdog. So we grew up, like, we weren't like, we should be, you know, we should help poor people. We grew up with this ethos is like, these are our people. Like, this is, this is where we come from. So even like something, this would give you a bit of the political ideology of my family is uh, there's a cherished night in Canada called Hockey Night in Canada. Hey, Daniel, I am, I'm born in Vancouver and I grew up in Alberta. Oh, I know. I know okay. Hockey Night in Canada. Absolutely. Go on. Okay, so keep Hockey going. Night in Canada, everyone's got their team, right? Yep. Like everyone's got their team, but we never picked a team. What we would do is I would come in and I'd say, dad, who are we cheering for? And he would tell me who the underdog was. Oh, good. And that's how we knew whose side we were on. Is we you were cheered all... for the Calgary Flames a lot, I think. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it made me a Leafs fan in the end, but. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think that did to you? Yeah. What, what did that instill in you? Yeah, I think that instilled in me that that this is where we like, you know, so even when it comes to politics, we were less concerned with the leader of the political party and much more concerned with, you know, what will it mean for the poor? Like, what will it mean for the underdog? Like, is anybody helping the underdog? That like, so that ethos, you know, when people say like, how did you even get into social justice and stuff? I'm like, I really think I was just born into this understanding that this is whose side we're on, you know? (laughs) And uh, so I think it's influenced all the things that, that I have done and believed and, you know, even my voting life. But Salvation Army, so we've had Aaron White. I know I want to talk with you, the, some of the work you've done with Aaron. He's a friend of the show. We've had a Salvation Army officer named Sam Tomlin has been on. I don't know if you know Sam in, in England. Uh, they have told me things about the Salvation Army being quite resistant to, to seeing itself as a politically engaged institution. It would, I mean, in terms of like actually getting involved in the kind of rough and tumble of, of government, a lot of people would have this impression that they were trying to separate themselves from that. Did you come up against any of that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, it's ironic because, of course, the early, you know, the earliest versions of the Salvation Army were all around rights and political engagement. So it is a bizarre, you know, so one of my strategies all the time is just to tell the early stories as much as I possibly could of, you know, marches to parliament and the cab horse charter and like the match factory and like the first uh, junior soldiers, which are little kids, they still a thing, junior soldiers. Uh, the first thing junior soldiers ever did when they were assembled were they went to uh, parliament and 
fought for the rights for children, uh, children to have human rights. And so, I mean, there's such a, like so much early political engagement in our movement. Uh, and it's just kind of, you know, as time went on and as it became more established and a, a lot a lot more to lose, I suppose, it became, I think the conversation becomes, I think this would be true of every church and every movement everywhere, is you start asking the question is, you know, what will this cost us instead of what's what's the thing that we should do? Well, the underdogs become the ones who have all the the power and the money and the resources and the uh, employment job role that they have to take care of. And all of a sudden you start being quite so flexible, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think what happens, I think the Salvation Army does use its advocacy in different ways. So rather than sort of a public agitation, they might try to influence, um, you know, sort of behind the scenes. But like when it comes to actually political engagement, that's like confrontative or agitating or, you know, that's, yeah, that's kind of a no-go because it might uh, hurt our, our, and then, you know, from the best possible, uh, and this actually, I was just with another nonprofit the other day, and we're talking about an advocacy campaign, and they're just like, this is going to put our work at risk. And so this is a genuine, you know, concern. So I always used to advocate even with not just the Salvation Army, but every big sort of nonprofit or big church that, you know, where you're always stumbling over your own self. I always uh, think through like, you've got to create ways. So you have to create like vehicles. So like maybe the whole ship doesn't have to do this. Maybe you can like launch a lifeboat and you actually have, so that's what I, I did a lot of work with the Salvation Army creating social justice uh, department where the social justice department might try to create avenues that would be engaged politically, but not put the entire organization at risk. So it is, I mean, it is a tricky, like, you know, with my prophetic hat on, if I'm Aaron White, it's like, you know, if you sleep with the whore of Babylon, you're bound to catch a sexually transmitted disease, right? So there's that. Or, you know, if I put on my best, you know, this is the, this does put the work at risk. And so you have to, you really have to take that seriously. Do you think it institutions, or especially maybe Christian institutions, should care about keeping going? Do you think that, like, keeping an institution going is part of the Christian agenda? No, but I do think that we have to factor in the fact that, uh, especially if the work that we do is to the poor, like I think especially the work that we do. So like if you're going to shut down something like the Salvation Army, for example, that's, you know, in America alone, that's 160,000 treatment beds that are going to stop just for addiction services. And that's, you know, not even talking about the food banks or the like so I think it's just I, I think there's a little bit more genuine but there is a guy named um, Campbell Roberts where I learned a lot of social justice uh, strategies from and he was a, a very he's retired now but he was a very well thought of senior Salvation Army officer in New Zealand and he's the one that really started he started a parliamentary unit in New Zealand where, and he's, I mean, even now he just hangs out with all the politicians. He's like on speed dial with the prime minister and the prime minister used to ask him because what they started to do was they started to advocate in some really smart ways rather than just agitate. They would, um, so for example, the prime minister would put this like state of the country report out every year and all the measurements would be around, you know, the wealth, the economics of the country, like all these things. And then his unit would put up out the real state of New Zealand and it would measure, you know, the social economic divide 
you know, it would measure like equity, it would measure the prison system, you know, like just where the places of like injustice were. And then the press, of course, would just eat it up, right? Like, because here's what the prime minister says, but here's what the social parliamentary unit of the Salvation Army says about the state of New Zealand. And they would be these, you know, and eventually what would happen is the prime minister would call up Campbell Roberts and say, okay, what are you putting out this year? Because <laughs> I have to adjust my, and that's, you know, so that's kind of a cool, just strategic idea of political engagement, but isn't so much like I'm with a party or against a party, but like yes. we're, we're bringing to the forefront yeah. the genuine needs yeah. of, uh, of the community. And that's like a major issue that comes up all the time when you try and talk about politics and Christianity is, oh, what party should I join? And I'm always trying to say, I, you can be political without joining a party. You can, yeah. you can be yeah. deeply engaged in it. Did you, I mean, you, you, st- you talked about growing up with the underdog mentality and care for the poor and recognizing that the gospel was also a social justice aspect. What changed? Did anything ever change or have you just gone from strength to strength? Has that just deepened always or did, has, have you changed at all in, in the past years? No, I think I, you know, I think that the needs of the poor, you know, and those, you know, real social needs are, are the thing that we should be paying attention to. I think they're the things that matter. So, you know, when I, I, I led a social justice unit for the South Army in Australia, we used to put out voting guides every year or every election that wouldn't be, again, neither party, but it would be here as a Christian, here are the questions you should be asking the politicians in your community. Like here are the things that should concern us as the people of God. And that's gonna be around wealth equity and it's gonna be around access and education. And it's gonna be around the welcoming of stranger. You know, the values of the kingdom of God need to be the values that we bring into our political framework. So we would just send those out, you know? So we're not suggesting the party, but we are suggesting you ask them these questions and then vote accordingly because we're Christians. So these are the things that we should care about. I I think that really, it should be a no brainer. Now you get to something like, you know, even in Canada, you know, you, you emphasize, so a lot of Christians will say, well, I can only vote for the pro-life party. And then you have, you know, our political leader right now who made his entire party uh, pro-choice and if you were pro-life you had to get out of the party which I think is like so undemocratic but anyway I feel like that itself is such bad leadership but uh, but anyway so even though I would champion a lot of the, the the things that he would and his party would stand for in many ways that decision to say like we're pro-choice across the board and forcing everyone to adapt to our you know that that's problematic so it does, it does create some dissonance within you because you do have to create, you do have to decide, you know, what does it mean as a person of faith to vote according to the values that we hold that are deep and true. And of course, I mean, I think that's what a lot of the, the Trumpism, you know, a lot of his platform to get the evangelicals to vote. And I know there's a lot more, there's power and there's all these terrible things, but like, I think that pro-life thing's a real thing. Like, and I think that was a card that he played that uh, Christians then were like, I have to vote. I have to vote for him because of this one thing. And then there's a kind of a you, you, you got the world, but you lost your own soul kind of a, uh, sort of activity going on that we've noticed. Have you you mean, you've talked about Australia, New Zealand, Canada, America. You travel a lot or you speak a lot. 
what was it like to stand up in front of crowds pre-COVID, pre-lockdown, pre-2020, the year we all lost our tiny minds? Interesting. I mean, like what's happening now? I, I really, I rarely get to talk to people who have, have kind of experienced talking to so many different types of people. Is there, yeah. are you noticing a common trend or is there different parts of the world are reacting differently? Well, I mean, I haven't got to much of the world. I'm pretty much stuck in North America right now in terms of COVID activity, but I am on the road again. I would say there's definitely a new humility. There's a new humility. So like I was at a church in Seattle a couple months ago and I had been there a couple of years ago before COVID and I had been speaking about spiritual disciplines and a thing I do called infinitum, which are like these ways of creating sustainable, healthy, deep spirituality on a daily uh, for ordinary people. And uh, he said, when you came a couple of years ago, we were like, what is she talking about? Like, and then he said, COVID hit. And we were like, what did she say again? <laughs> and then now, you know, when I came back, they were just like, okay, tell us more about that. So I think that's an interesting, like, you know, they were just in this like building bigger and better. And like, they were in the, like their growing church. So they just were not getting this idea of like, you know, spiritual disciplines and spiritual formation and like how this matters outside of this program. And, uh, and then they just, there's a new hunger for that now. I think they realize they need something else, um, which, you know, that's nice. A new humility for sure. Is that something that we're seeing? Have you seen that in other places as well? I mean, is this, do you ever speak to others besides evangelicals and Pentecostals, do you speak to other groups of Christians as well? Yeah, sometimes Catholics, uh, mostly charismatic Catholics. Um, and teachers, you know, I did a bunch of principal, you know, teacher things. And yeah, there's, it's a pretty eclectic, but mostly I think a large, especially in America, a large portion of what I, the people I speak to are evangelical. And I, you know, it's mixed. It depends on where you go. Um, for me, like I remember going to Phoenix, you know, just at the very end, like when we were allowed in the country and going to, to a church that just was like, they would they were just meeting like normally for the whole entire time. Like, I just was like, what's happening? Like there was a whole pandemic guys. Like it was like, nothing was happening. And uh, it was my first like live worship experience in over a year. Um, so, you know, it's just like, I, it's just shocking, but anyway, so I think different spaces, different people, it's a, you know, it's fascinating. It's fascinating, but definitely there's a humility. There's a fatigue in the leaders that I speak to. There's a fatigue. But I think for most most part, maybe it's just who I'm speaking to, there is a real hunger to figure out what's real. Like, you know, where people are, no one's really holding any hope that we're gonna return to where we were before. Like there is a real genuine humility going on. Which is not something for people like me who are just sort of scanning the social media, like humility doesn't project itself, right? So you don't sort of see that. Like what you tend to see is people doubling down on their triumphalism or, or their anger yeah or they're like let's come back and, and that kind of stuff but most of the leaders I mean especially I think there's just such a weariness and I think you know there, there's this place where there's this tipping point I think in some countries like in the UK and Europe and in Canada we're already there you know where there's this just general sense like this triumphant church thing isn't going to work like it's not true so and it's not working so there has to be something different I'm not sure that we found it yet in Canada but at least we're in this like this is this isn't working and I think in America really they're just entering that new like what this might not work like I, I they're literally just 
you know, most of the, at least the bigger church people that I talk to are just literally starting like that church in Seattle to say, oh, this thing matters. Like, okay, like, let's actually talk more about that. How do we do that? Yeah. So tell me about infin- infinitum or infinitum. I looked it up. I couldn't, I never heard it pronounced. So I didn't know how to pronounce it, but. Yeah, it's a fight. We, we're fighting it out. So all my UK friends say infinitum. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> and Americans and then the Canadians. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Infinitum, infinitum. It's Latin for boundless. Okay. And the idea is really, it's just an open rule of life. It's just postures, practices, daily, weekly, monthly rhythms that create some sustainable spiritual health. Uh, and we say just to keep Jesus at the center of our lives, uh, what's required. So it's really meant to be, I kind of say it's like the Moravians at a 12 step meeting. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like it's kind of this, like it's open and like do it or don't do it. We don't care. Like, it's like all up to you if this is something that is helpful to you, but also it's got that, it's got those rhythms and postures that are actually very useful to practice and have been a real game changer for me and my own leadership. Is it a form of fellowship without two hours on a Sunday morning? mega church kind of experience i mean is is it like an alternative to quote unquote church yeah i would say that uh that's not that's not the desire uh, but the desire is like you know we, we we tend to in marketing purposes we would say it's an ingredient brand so like it's like you know if there's lycra in your pants you're gonna like them better uh, or if there's Gore-Tex in your jacket, it's going to keep you from getting wet. And you don't really care where you buy the jacket. You just want the Gore-Tex to be in there because you know it's a quality. So I think we see infinitum like that. It's a it's a quality way. It's a means by, you know, where spiritual formation can happen for beginners. We're not, you know, we're not like making it all fancy and special, although there are ways that people can go deeper if they want. But um, it's just kind of entry level basic spiritual formation. And what I've discovered over the years is that most people don't have that. They haven't learned that. So even discipleship, when we say discipleship, most times people think about a Bible study. And, you know, we know I said, like, if Bible studies could help us, we'd be helped. Like, <laughs> I know I'm a professional Bible study teacher, and I totally agree with you. It's, it's uh, largely a waste of time. Well, and it's just, it's about practice. It's about patterns. You know, it's about, I call it postures. It's, it's about these practices. So we really just say infinitum is a practice of discipleship and um, of Jesus centered living. And, you know, one of the things actually speaking of politics and sort of what I think, you know, is one of the major struggles going on right now in the church and the world and like, one of the things that's been exposed recently is um, just our misconceptions of, of power. And I was thinking through, you know, there's three postures in infinitum that I pray every day. It's surrender and generosity and others focused living. So those are the three postures are that what I think look, what love looks like, you know, if, you're, if my life is going to look like love, it's going to be surrendered. It's going to be generous. And then it's going to be others focused. So I practice these postures every day. There's hand postures that go with this and all, all, the, all these kinds of oh, things. Yeah. Muscle memory, get, very important, yeah. Yeah, and even yeah. like neurological, like get in my body, right? Like embody this faith. I want to live this faith out. I don't just want to have nice beliefs. You know, I want to have rooted practices. So um, anyway, I was thinking about this three kind of lies or worldly views of power that that churches and Christians are, are so... Uh, embedded to like I, I think we don't even realize this but for the most part we really think that power is is ours 
you know, like that we have, and you were, I think, alluding to this where you're like, is Christian or is hanging on to your institution part of the plan? You know, it's not like this is ours. And as soon as we have this, like, it's ours, we're in trouble. You know, this is a worldly view of power and the kingdom view of power is that it's God's. All power belongs to God. This is all power, all majesty, all glory are God's. And that is literally the posture of surrender, right? Is to say like, it's not, this is not mine. If this belongs to God. And then the other misconception about power that I think gets us in trouble is that we think it's limited. And a, a worldly power is limited, right? There's that the pie is only so big and only certain people can get certain slices, but kingdom power, unlimited. It's like the more Jesus gives away of his power, the more he has, the more power, right? Like, it's just like, there's no, that's why he just goes around giving power away. And so this is a generous posture, right? Just to say freely I've received and now freely I'm gonna give. And this is where we don't have to be afraid of losing power because uh, kingdom power is unlimited. And then I, I always say the third, the third worldly lie about power is that it's for you. You know, it's for your gain. It's for your control or for your um, ego. And actually true kingdom power is for others. Um, and this is what you've been given it for. That those postures are literally me reworking my brain and my life to combat sort of this worldly notion of power and recenter myself upon a Jesus uh, notion of power, Jesus framework. How does this work? Do you find it this plays differently to women than to men? Do you have to change your message when you're talking to men leaders as opposed to women leaders? Well, you know, I just I gotta I gotta dumb it down for the men sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just joking. Um, yeah, I mean, oh gosh, men. Yeah. So I think this power thing is a real thing um, that men, I think, be, maybe just because of their, the power that they hold, you know, there's a genuine uh, problem with views of power and then the practice of power. Um, and when I talk to men, I think they're just more entrenched in systems and more, you know, they're, they're leading more at the top of these systems that have been built upon this sort of weird version of power. Yeah, and born into an entitlement, like the yeah. entitlement of like, well, this world was made for people like you. So of course you're going to lead it. Of course you're going to run it. It was built for you. Yeah, and then I would say also like, there's just, they're so entrenched that, you know, they can't see, they can't see. And really every, any kind of corrective measure can, all, can feel just like a, an attack. Um, instead of a genuine, so, you know, so it feels weird, right? Cause you just really want to knock people. Like you just want to knock them in the head, but actually it's the opposite that, that has to happen. There has to be some sort of affirmation of who the people are so that they can not be personally attacked. <laughs> right. Cause this identity is so wrapped up in being a powerful, so-called powerful yes. person that when you tell them you're supposed to give it away or use it for the people, then you've now undermined their whole identity. Yes. And I think the other thing is that like, so I was uh, speaking to a whole bunch of youth leaders and I had them do this privilege wheel, which is about identifying your power. Right. So you can just, people can Google this if they want, but there are these privilege wheels and it just basically has like whatever your culture. So if it's North America, it's got like a white man at the center of the power structure. And then it just has this like uh, uh, coming out of that wheel, these various things. So you're male or you're female or you're abled or you're you know, disabled or you're economically wealthy or you're not. And it just, it has this wheel. And so I just gave them a couple minutes to identify their power because if you don't identify your power, you're just, well, you know, this is the big problem is that we're just like, I'm not, I'm not powerful. God's all, but, and you're just like, you know, you have power. <laughs> 
So anyway, I had them just color in the wheel, like according to the power that they held. And the responses were fascinating. So a woman kind of halfway back kind of put up her hand and said she was surprised because she had been taught her whole life. She didn't have any power. And according to the power wheel, she actually had quite a bit. So she was like, oh, wow, I actually have power. So I think that's important to identify power we hold. The guy, and then to have a conversation about what's it for? You know, what is this power that you hold for? And, um, but there was a guy at the front, a middle-aged guy, and he's just weeping. He was just crying. And I said to him, you know, what are you, what's going on? Like, why are you crying? <laughs> Huffing up. And, um, and he said, I have all the power. I have all the power. And I feel, I feel bad about it. And I was like, this is the other problem is that, you know, you don't really have all the power. <laughs> no, you identify it's not yours. <laughs> That's right. It's not yeah. yours. It's not yeah. limited. Yeah. And it's for something other than yourself. So to identify it and then to use your power or your privilege well, I think it's a message because we're so like, we're hammering people about the power they hold and not really teaching them how to hold their power in such a way that will be honoring to God. And I think that's really, we need a lot more work in that space. What happens when you speak? to women so i just as a very quick background I, t I often teach a lot about sort of kenosis and about putting a limit on your power to make space for other people and, and then inevitably the question is always well that's all very well to speak to white men who have so-called power to do what to do with it what do you do to women how how does that teaching if if we're all supposed to have the mind of christ how does how does how do you teach this to women and what changes when you're speaking to women yeah, this is so fascinating. I read a book uh, called Quit Like a Woman, which is this new sobriety movement for women and it, like from a feminist perspective. And it's really fascinating because their critique, and this is, I'm going to get to this Christian thing in a sec, but their critique of AA. So they're like, AA is fine, whatever, cheers. And I'm a big, I've used the steps as a discipleship tool. And I, but this woman says in this book, the problem is, is that AA was created by two white privileged male powerful guys so for them to access the higher power they had to give up their power and you know so that comes up in AA all the time like careful that's your ego careful that's your ego careful that's every decision that you try to you try to make or like thing you're trying to promote they're like oh hey that's your ego and like they're allergic to ego but she said when you've been uh when you've had the absence of power so you've had no power like you've had no voice you have no sense of self you have like you've been crushed which are like a lot of the women I've worked with, of course, that's where they come from. Right. You Too much ego to, is not their problem. Yeah. You don't need to give up your power. You need to find some. Right. You need to find some. So when I, and that was just like such a mind blowing truth for me. I, like it made sense of a lot of the struggles that I had with people saying like, I've got to give up my power. And it's like, you don't have any power. You've got to find some power. So I usually, the number one thing I say to women is uh, I teach them true humility. True humility is agreeing with God about who you are. And we talk through false humility and what we've been taught, which often is like in the guise of this kenosis idea of like emptying ourselves as like this doormat theology, which like puts up with all this stuff. But what does it mean to actually live truly humble with God and just to agree with God about who he says we are? And we, I just talk a lot about right-sizing ourselves but probably in the opposite direction as mo most men it's funny if you read like um in philippians right like the whole a lot of that kenosis teaching was probably aimed at Judea and syntyche two powerful women who paul didn't say your problem women is that you're women in charge of a church that's not what he said he said your problem is that you are so powerful you're, but you're not using it well and his solution to them was have the mind of christ and it's it is interesting that the context was arguably 
to women in leadership, uh, even when he was doing that in Philippians. Yeah, well, and, and you see this like when women, uh, and this is one of the things I do this Women Speaker Collective where we actually create a collective of women. And one of the things I said is I'm so tired of the scarcity mindset with women. And again, this buying into this old idea of power where we're, we're in this thing together. There's enough room for all of us. As a matter of fact, there's more room than we ever thought possible. And we can, we're not competition. Like we, we refuse to compete with each other, right? So, and we're just trying to do things in an opposite spirit and kind of hold our power a bit differently. But if you, how do organizations uh, change and adapt to this? Like, so if, if let's say some organization was convinced by your, by Better Together, they're convinced by your book and they want to change. Do they have to stop and start again? Can they, can they restructure or can they do something about it on the fly? How does that work? Yeah, I think, it, I, I mean, I don't know that you can do it on the fly. I do think it does uh, take deliberate intention. Yeah. And I would say, you know, like, so I often use like a brace when a child's born with a foot that points in the wrong direction. Right. They get a brace on that foot, but the brace doesn't point straight. It points in the opposite direction until those muscles are developed enough that then when they take the brace off, the, the foot is straight. So I would say that organizations that I've identified that they're pointing in the wrong direction, you know, mm -hmm. they don't look like the diverse company of witnesses that the scriptures ask us to look like, mm -hmm. then there needs to be some corrective measures taken. And those corrective measures will feel wrong. Yeah. Before right. They'll actually feel right. Yeah. So, um, so I think to be deliberate about identifying what needs to change and then being um, overcorrective in those changes until the muscles, relationships, networks are built, that it can actually become straight again. I think there needs to be some real intentional work that way. I really, I just have been thinking so much about power these days and just trying to figure out what, how do you define it? You're going to help me here. <laughs> how do you define power? Well, I mean, the loosest definition of power is like influence, you know, but I mean, power is actually exertion to control, right? So it's like, it's the kind of influence that you have that can control outcomes or situations. I've thought of it as like the ability to want something and then to see what you want happen. Now I'm trying to think whether this is limited or not. So your, your argument is that it's unlimited. My argument is that a worldly perspective of power is limited, but a kingdom perspective of power is unlimited. So again, this is going to like it's going to bump up against systems, right? Because there is only so much. There's only so many leadership seats at the table. So in a worldly idea of power, this is like there's only so much of that. But if kingdom power is about influence around gospel truth, you know, this is where Jesus. And again, Jesus doesn't want a seat at the table. He's like in charge of everything. He doesn't need it. So there is a sense in which that kenosis is more of emptying of this worldly notion of power, I think, to actually embrace a different form of power. So I think there is kind of this, you do have to wrestle with this, like the power dynamics and give your power, give your power away. But there are these, there are these competing systems, there are these two different systems that are operating all the time. And I think when I think you can, you can, well, we have to coexist. And these, these two systems are real, right? The now and the not yet. So these two systems are real. But I would say that when those two systems collide in such a way that one is promoted over the other, we have to choose the kingdom every single time. Have you been, how much of this are, are informed by the Sermon on the Mount? Have you been Yes. Living with it. the sermon. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the, so I, there's actually a free course if anybody wants it. I did with a world vision called the right side up and it's on the beatitudes. And 
what I, what I did was, and, and this was, again, this was my, my hope to try to influence people and try to invite people into like, let's look at this differently. So I was saying the experts that I know on the Beatitudes are not white Western people. <laughs> we don't have, I don't have a clue about poverty of spirit. I, my best teachers have been people who have actually experienced uh, poverty of spirit. So what we did was I invited all my kind of like, you know, high profile platform friends to ask questions. And then we invited the experts to be those people from most vulnerable contexts around the world who had actually struggled through. So Christine Kane ends up asking my friend Tannis, who's a human trafficking survivor, about poverty of spirit. Can you teach me? Can you help me understand? And what do I do to begin to like participate in this poverty of spirit blessing? And so it's just a really fascinating. So like the head, uh, the president of World Vision USA uh, asks this beautiful guy named Victor, who lives in Bangladesh in a home for disabled uh, kids, uh, what purity of heart looks like. And it's, I mean, it's so powerful because you're just like, oh, wow. Like, so, okay. So Craig Rochelle asks Jayakumar Kumar in India, what humility is meeknesses and you know it's so amazing because Craig Rochelle is asking these questions about humility and meekness from this like 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 well-lit studio you know perfect microphone and then Jayakmar is answering him from like obviously some kind of phone propped up in like an Indian hut right and so even visually you're just like wow you know this is this is fast it's so fascinating so that was a really cool project that I did with World Vision, just trying to think through like, you know, how do we even start flipping, like use the power that we have for something else? Like, how do we begin to do that and um, and reimagine what that looks like and uh, start participating with God in it? You know, it is, it's tricky because the way we've set up the church is so much like the power structure of the world. Do we have to... All right, this is a pointed question, Danielle Strickland, major speaker around the world. Do we have to stop standing on platforms in large sort of mega spaces? I mean, is, is, is part of the problem the, that whole dynamic? I mean, the visual feature of a person standing on a stage with a microphone? Is that yeah. part of the problem that we've got? Well, I would say that spectator Christianity is part of the problem. Yes, where we've created a show. So how do you puncture your own bubble? Because like, I don't think you are part of the problem, but I can think that like a celebrity on a stage in a bar large crowd, like that's perhaps feeding the wrong kinds of messages to spec, like that's creating a spectator culture, right? So how, how do you puncture your own bubble then? Well, I'm a mother of three boys, so that happens. Real that, help, that happens, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I've tried to stay rooted in real work. Like, I feel like as soon as your main work becomes entertaining, Christians, you're in trouble, you know? So I yes. try to stay in, <laughs> I know. in yeah. real work. But also, I think I also say, I also am faithful. I feel like I my, my goal is to be faithful to serve the kingdom of God and the people that he has given me to serve without, I don't find it helpful or useful to judge people for, for, for long. I just, I find the whole exercise to be harmful, both no matter who I'm talking to, like just judgment is highly overrated. So, but I think to serve and to be faithful to what God tells me to do, I think as soon as I start editing, you know, and stopping myself from doing something for the sake of my own platform, 
um, then I'm part of the problem. So I think that's part of the that's part of the dynamic that's important too when you're when you're given. I mean, and again, it's like this: like, do I just give up everything and say like I'm out because I'm part of the problem, or do I use what I have as a means by which? And then that's the other thing is like just trying to create spaces for other voices. So that's one of my big things now is to say like, okay, you know, I have this plethora of female diverse speakers that we've been training for such a time as this. So like one of my strategies is to try to bring one of them with me to try to create networks for them to try to create capacity for them so that we're, you know, we're changing the dynamic of what it is we're doing here and even what, who we're listening to and what qualifies them. And I don't know, I, there are days where I'm just like light fire to the whole thing and walk away. I mean, but you know, what's really interesting. Every time I get to those days, this is fascinating. This is just the Lord. Uh, he'll always bring people to me to say, you know, this mattered. Like what you said here was a catalyst for me to do this. Like I'm a missionary now. Like I meet women all the time or like I read this book, The Liberating Truth and it like now I'm leading a church, you know, and I'll just be like, okay. And God, God will just be like, do you trust me or not? Like, <laughs> um, because it's not anything I wanted, you know, like I never like, what on earth is this thing? Like, it's, you know, this thing, I just don't like what on earth. And God's just like, it's really not up to you. Like, you know, just, just serve, be faithful, like, and, uh, and, and be faithful to me. You know, I, I've got a plan. So what's the reception been for the I'm really I am interested in the better together what's the reception been like when you've moved that around have you found people receiving this well or you get pushback yeah it's a combination I think the number one pushback I get on better together is the my critique of the Billy Graham rule <laughs> yeah tell <laughs> me about that the yeah. controversial thing which is hilarious because I talk about power and like, like <laughs> the most controversial thing is Billy Graham but um uh, yeah, it's just this idea of segregating the sexes as a way that we, and then, you know, as a result of men holding most power positions, the Billy Graham rule, which refuses to allow a man in any space with a woman, um, then of course penalizes women just for being female, not for being, you know, so it's like seeing, seeing women through the lens of threat. Uh, and I'd say that's one of the major major issues in all the diversity conversation is seeing difference through the lens of threat instead of difference as uh, an opportunity. So, you know, this is really interesting because I teach on a team with Roxy Cavey in, in Toronto. And I remember he did a thing where he was like, I always, he, they did a series called Her Story, which was about women in the church and, and the biblical passages and stuff. And Roxy's interesting because he used to hold a complementarian position and then changed mind through the scriptures. So he has a fascinating, just sort of Bible teaching series. So I highly recommend the series. It's a good one. The last thing he says is he said, you know, I used to always buy this idea that we would, even in our, in our small groups, you know, like of accountability groups would be segregated, obviously, because there are like private topics. And he said, for the most part, the topics that are private are sexual uh, conversations. And he said, so I would be in this small group with a group of men and we'd all be talking about, you know, they'd all be talking about pornography and whether or not they viewed it or not. It's like one of the big, big, big deals. And he goes, I, I was just struck by the idea that we're all talking about objectifying women without any women, which is like another way of objectifying women. So he said, and it never really works very well. But he said, so what I decided was like, I decided to invite a woman into the group and like women in 
and have a conversation about pornography use with a woman present. Because how much more will that help in terms of our accountability and knowing that this is harmful? And he said, so like even the idea of segregating out these, and he said, I know practically it's hard and people are, you know, it's like we we're ingrained in these segregated ideas of church. But he said, like, I really think there's power to unsegregating our lives, uh, especially across gender. So I, I think people are mostly just afraid in this kind of culture of being accused, you know, or of being in unsafe situations where they could be accused. So I think this is a great opportunity. In my book, I say this is a wonderful opportunity to just rethink how we're leading anyway. You know, because the only time God said in scripture, this is not good, was when a man was trying to lead by himself. Um, it's literally the only time in the created order of things where God's like, no, that's, that's not, not a good one. That's not good. Everything else is good except Everything's that. Everything's good. Yeah, not that. And so I feel like we should probably just rethink team leadership anyway. And yeah. there shouldn't be any of this like one-on-one -on -one mentoring where the one guy is mentoring the other guy. There should be a team of people leading and mentoring together. Yeah. It's creating spaces in which power can flow easily from person to person. And yeah, and, and even with the best of intentions, like, see, that's where you could say like people go, oh, but I just don't want to have an affair with my wife on my wife. So I'm doing this. And you're like, well, yeah, but that's that's a good intention. But you're and for the most the part to tell you the truth, for the most part, it's the wives. Right. Yeah. So that's a fascinating, you know, so like a lot of the pushback are from women sort of saying like, no, I don't want my husband mentoring a woman you know like this isn't a thing so I think even just so I talk a little bit about even the dynamics of marriage and like how we even view each other like I mean it's just so many it's all power in the end really unpicks so much in, in imagination that we've been kind of born into to bring us back yeah around. and so much fear you know so many yeah. of our decisions are governed by fear which yeah. will only ever lead to oppressive it's practice. never a good reason to act on anything right so no, that's right uh, Danielle, where could people go? I mean, what what kind of projects are you working on right now? Like, what's coming down the pipeline for you? Well, I uh, hesitate to ask you to predict the future, but I'd love to know. Uh, what do you think the future is, is in store for us? Well, here's my hope-filled future. <laughs> I think my hope-filled future, and I, you know, I was talking to a group of pastors, like yeah. a couple hundred pastors at the beginning of COVID, and they were all like, what's going to happen? The church is going to die, you know? And I was like, you know, I ran... China, they seem to have figured out how to do the Jesus without gathering and without pastors. So I think we're going to be okay. <laughs> uh, and actually, we might be better than we ever thought we could be. Uh, so I think in my perfect, you know, hopeful future, I think this discovery of a spirituality that is holistic and embodied uh, is actually good news for the church and for the gospel and for individuals. Um, so I'm super, I'm super hopeful. Uh, about the future. I think the gospel's never been more relevant. I don't think, I, and actually, I think you can feel this uh, recentering on Jesus. Uh, you know, so Brad Jurisak's one of my favorite guys, and he, you know, his emphasis on, you know, we spent a whole generation trying to convince people Jesus is God, and now it's time to really remind everyone that God is Jesus. Right. Um, I think there's something really beautiful about that reemergence of the Beatitudes and Jesus and the you know, countercultural move of the kingdom. So I'm excited. I, I I really am excited that this is, you know, the exposure of what we were doing was not actually maybe as much about the kingdom as we thought. Uh, I think is good news. Um, and what I think the the emphasis for those of us who are 
are trying to help serve people who are panicked and afraid and tired and uh, despairing is to help make, you know, meaningful practices or ways that people can participate in the kingdom so that they don't feel like they're just um, deconstructing. You know, they actually have a place to land and a place to grow in a different way. So that's a lot, a large part of my work is around trying to help Christians and trying to help people of faith or even spiritually curious people um, how to find Jesus and live a Jesus life. You know how like the, in the, the so-called dark ages, right? The monasteries were the little, they, 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 they held civilization. They kept the flame alight while all around was losing its tiny mind. So we're all losing our tiny minds now. And uh, what are you going to throw in the ark? What, what are you going to preserve for the next generation? Yeah, well, I mean, my hope for inf infinitum is that, um, that it might be an actual usable ordinary, you don't have to go to a monastery, but you could actually center your life differently. Um, so you could live differently. And there's some beautiful stories about that, how that's helping people. If people are listening to this, we're kicking off a Christmas challenge. So December 5th, altogether, we're kicking off this uh, uh, 30 days Christmas challenge. Uh, where you practice infinitum on a daily basis and you can sign up at infinitumlife.com so if that's something or if you're a church leader we also provide you with all the sermon outlines and small group questions and if you want to bring your church through the spiritual formation exercise uh, over the season so i don't know if this is going to air in time but oh i love it no you're doing your bit to keep the flame going right <laughs> in the yeah and i think i think peacemaking is the lens by which we should view modern discipleship so again you know this is jesus through the beatitudes but i really think peacemaking is probably much more of a primary emphasis we should be focusing on and teaching people to do yeah and i think yeah i, I think raising up raising up a generation of diverse leaders is going to help as well i love it thank you so much for coming and sharing some of your experience and wisdom with us i'm really glad to have had this conversation oh thanks thanks for having me it's it's been fun. Well, I hope our paths will cross one day. I'm going to get back to Canada eventually. I, there's some hockey teams that need my support. Yeah. And hey, if you're ever in Toronto, just give me a call. We'll figure it out. Oh, it's really good. Offer some dinner. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay. Take care. Bye. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about 10th Theology at www.tenttheology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.